0: Pramhanandam paramasukhadam kevalam jnanam dandatitam gaganasadrisham tattvam asyadilaksham ekam nityam vimalam achalam sarvadesakshibhutam bhavatitam I bow to that one who is beyond all the three gunas, beyond all ego, all sense of separateness, who is one with Brahman. And I bow to him in you, who are an expression of that same Brahman. Remember that a great master is not different from us, except that he has realized what we should realize. He has realized our potential. There's a beautiful saying in this same book that I've been reading, Conversations with Yogananda, where somebody says to him, how do you differentiate between yourself and your disciples? And he used an illustration, which he frequently used, of the ocean and the waves. He said that all the waves are made of the same... Ocean, they're all composed of ocean water. There's no difference. So what you think when you hear that much is well, but the guru then is a taller wave. No. The guru is the small wave, the wave which is closer to the bosom of the ocean. It's the ego that's the tall wave, trying to push itself away from that bosom, affirm its own individuality. The guru's greatness is not that he's bigger, taller, wider, etc. than other human beings, it's that he's less and less and less, until there's no ego there at all. I used to be amazed, when I'd look into his eyes, because everywhere you look, you see in people's eyes ego, likes, dislikes, desires. It's, it's just a part of human consciousness. It's amazing what God has been able to do with a nose, two eyes, and a, and a mouth. But the difference is not the physical form It's the consciousness behind it. The consciousness of every human being is in some way different. But there was none of that in him. It was amazing to see that there was just, he was like a window onto infinity. You know, I've mentioned this story before. It's a very interesting one. I used to work in the ashram at Mount Washington in a room that looked out onto Uh, the main garden there. And I enjoyed every now and then looking up from my writing uh, letters or whatever and uh, looking at the greenery and just enjoying resting my eyes. Well, one day there was a rainstorm and it splattered mud on the window so that I could never really enjoy the garden because of all this mud. But I was so busy, at least that's my excuse, that uh, it took me a couple of weeks before I could get out there and clean the window off. When I'd cleaned it, I stepped back and looked at it through it from inside, and I said, oh, what a beautiful window. And then I smiled to myself because I thought, what makes it beautiful is that I can't see it anymore. I can see through it. Well, that is the beauty of a master. Great saints, great masters are the most beautiful of human beings. But they're beautiful because God's beauty shines through them. It's, again, like the sunset, which is beautiful when the sun shines on it, but those same clouds when the sun goes down, when after twilight, they're gray and uninteresting, and finally in the night you hardly see them, and you only may object because they get in the way of seeing the stars. Well, that light which you see in a master's life is what animates him. His beauty is that light coming through And people who don't have that beauty, they may be film stars, but you look at their eyes and you see nothing but death, frankly. The death of delusion, the death of ego, not the death of ego in the sense of having killed the ego, but the ego's having killed spiritual consciousness with attachment and worldliness. And the beauty of a guru is that that divine beauty shines through him. It's not as if he were a blank By no means. The most beautiful person I ever saw was my own guru. And yes, I have met other saints, and they too were beautiful, and I do not mean to be sectarian, but he was special for me. And he was very special as a master, too, because he was not striving to achieve. He had achieved long ago. He wrote a poem, God's Boatman, in which he said that I will come back, I will ply my oars again and again, coming back to these shores, as long as one stray brother is left crying by the wayside. My God, what compassion. It's God's compassion. Of course, I always want to depersonalize these thoughts too, lest you think that, oh, he's special, because he's not a special wave. He's close to the ocean. These are divine qualities that came through him. But you see, once a soul achieves liberation, some few decide they don't want to go into that infinite one because of all the suffering that they see in this world. And they want to tell others. They think, well, if nobody were to come back, how would these poor people fare? And so they keep that one little desire. This is how my Guruji explained it to me. That one little desire to help other people. And that's what brings them back again and again. They're completely liberated, except for that desireless desire to help others. In that way, my guru came back. Who knows how long? You know, there are a few masters who have come to this planet for who knows how many thousands of years. His param param guru, Babaji, Babaji himself said he was Lord Krishna. In another incarnation, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita said, I gave this teaching to Ikshvaku and all the great rishis from ancient times. And even then, they were still, I think that certain great masters, and my guru was one of them, are responsible for the evolution of this planet. And uh, so, yes, he had that great compassion, but uh, it was not he. It was God through him. So he used to say the greatest prayer of all is give me thyself, Lord, that I may give thee to all. That kind of love is not one that many people can come up with or do come up with. He did. He had that. That's why I'm a little distressed when I hear people talking about him as if this displeased him or that person didn't, he didn't like that or he didn't like moody people around him. He had no likes and dislikes. He was the same to everybody. But he had to be strict sometimes. He wasn't strict to other people. but he was strict with those who gave them their lives, asking him to discipline them. That's different. But otherwise he was just the soul of generosity. He accepted everybody as they were. Well, I wanted to read to you a saying of the Masters. This is saying number 164. And the essence of this saying, it deals with death. Death is something that we experience when we leave our bodies, but not only then. What we really want to do is die supremely. To die, really, is to die to the ego. But you don't lose your ego when you die normally because there's still desires. The ego, the thought of self, is sort of like a post, a magnetic post, you might say, around which rotate a host of desires that need to be fulfilled before you can really say you are free. So going in death is not freedom. It's just Sort of getting a rest so that you can come back and try all over again and maybe do it a little better next time. We can hope so. It's a very good thing to meditate on death, not as just the death of this body, but with that death, the death of all attachments to this world. Now let me read what he wrote here about death. He said, most people lose all interest in this world at the time of death. That is natural and right. After all, they are soon going to have to leave it. Besides, this world isn't ours, it is God's world. That mental dissolvement at the approach, this involvement, I should say, that mental disinvolvement at the approach of death should remind everyone of the need for being inwardly non-attached all through life, even while busily engaged in worldly activities. So whatever your activities. Remember, God could just with one slap of death and you'd be gone. Happens all the time. Somehow it's one of the mysteries of life why people seeing death everywhere somehow can't imagine themselves dead. I really think it's a very good mental exercise when you're washing yourself to think this body is someday going to be dust, ashes, nothing. Nothing that you own today that is so important to you is going to be yours in just a little while. Life seems so long when you're young, but it gets shorter and shorter. In the end, you realize it's all just gone like that. I look at, well, when I had to write my book, The the Path, I I could remember all the things, many, many recollections came flooding to me of my early childhood, And I was reliving them as if they were today, but they were a long time ago. At the time they seemed real, but as I look back, how short it has all been. I'm grateful that I have accomplished a few things. I would think what a horrible life it would have been to have done nothing useful with my life. But in the end it isn't you who do it, it isn't for you that you do it. God is the doer. He does everything through you. Therefore, in everything that you do, give it always back to God. Don't think it's my house, my family, my children, my wife, my husband. Those thoughts will be gone. How many wives? How many husbands? How many homes? How many children? How many grandparents and parents? And All those things you have had, they go. Others come. It's just like acting on a stage. You come out and play a role, go back, come back and play another role, go back. How long it goes on. It's just a horrifying thought when you think of the the endlessness of it, all to satisfy desires that in the end don't give fulfillment anyway. So anyway, I want to go on reading here because the Master was sort of Smiling at the contrast here, after speaking about the need for inner non-attachment, he said, I recall in amusing contrast, the story of a man who, as he lay dying, saw that the oil lamp in his room was burning too high. He called out to his son, Hey, Ramu, turn down that light. It is wasting oil. There the man was, on the point of leaving the body, The oil in his own lamp was nearly exhausted, and still he worried about wasting the oil in that lamp. Such is worldly attachment. Even at death, people cling to what they call life. Don't be like that, the master concluded with a blissful smile. (coughs) That smile was a reminder in itself of the eternal bliss that awaits all of us. If we remain ever non attached to this world and attached only to God, all the things that you've been building up like paper castles, sort of, they'll all be blown away. They don't mean anything. To meditate on death is a very wholesome thing to do. This is why many yogis go and meditate in cremation grounds. It may seem a grisly thing, but no, it's not. Sooner or later, you're going to be there yourself. Remember, you are not going to be there. Only your body is going to be there. Your body is nothing but an overcoat. You put it on for a while, then you get rid of it. You go on. You can't end your existence by getting rid of a body. Some people think they will by committing suicide. That's not the answer. Remember that in all circumstances, when I I was talking about when I wrote my book, The Path, and I looked at a photograph of myself when I was four years old, same old fellow, just a little child's face, but the same fellow, the same basic consciousness, and that consciousness will be yours for eternity when you give up your ego in God, it isn't that you lose your ego, you expand it to infinity, but you remember that that little ego also was a part of the infinite reality, that you yourself went through those series of experiences, who knows how many lifetimes, many I can tell you, and then who woke up and found that it was God who dreamed it all, Why waste that time? There comes a sense of anguishing, monotony to realize how long it goes on and still you're seeking. What are you seeking? You know, it's the law of duality is this, that for every plus, there has to be a minus. It's like the waves on the ocean. For a rising wave, there has to be a compensating trough. Otherwise, the ocean would all be one level. The ocean of spirit is one level when he That's why in the Bible it speaks of spirit blew upon the face of the waters. This is what they speak of in the Shastras, how God created the principle of duality, of dhaita. And with dhaita, you have the ups and downs of life. Now, the contrast between the two is inevitable. There always has to be, one has to be followed by the other. You'll remember if you have read Autobiography of a Yogi, how when my guru met his guru, and there was such bliss in that meeting. But at the end of the meeting, there was a certain sour note, because his guru insisted he go back to college, and my guru was a very stubborn young man, and he said he would not. And he commented after that, the dual scales of maya that balance every joy with a sorrow. And so their meeting at that time, it was their preliminary meeting, ended on a slightly sour note. Then he had to surrender to his guru's will, and then he, uh, he did go to college, he did come to his guru. But you will see that in everything in life, every fulfillment is followed by a disappointment. Every success is followed by failure. Every up is followed by a down. These are the dual scales. You cannot escape them. They're a reality. Man thinks, if I can just push that wave higher and higher and higher, I'll finally achieve supremacy. It doesn't work that way. For every rising wave, you will have a less, a minus. Well, let's put it in this mathematical way, that for every plus, there is a minus. Now, isn't it somewhat anguishing to think that for every thing that you do, it all has to end in zero at the end? That everything you do for incarnation is trying to fulfill desire after desire after desire, and what is the final result? Zero? That really, literally, is what it is. You can't get away from that truth. It's just the way the universe was made. It's the way you were made. When you reach that understanding of anguishing, monotony of it all, Then you say, God, let me know you. Live without fear in him, or with fear, without him. Joy to you. Though green summer fade and winter draw near, my Lord, in your presence I live. What? singing must end.